Welcome to your first official day of medical school. Hello and welcome to the MedStud Memoirs podcast. I'm your host, Brian Elliott, here with my co-host, Sarah Halbert. This episode will be covering the medical content for our interview with Dr. Ryan Gray, founder of the Med School headquarters and host of the award-winning podcast for pre-medical and medical students. In the next episode, we talked with Dr. Gray about his experiences during intern year, when he took care of incarcerated patients. It brings up a whole lot of ethical scenarios to discuss, and we're going to talk about bias in medicine, and most importantly, how to not let the bias affect your practice. Anyway, look out for that episode next week. This episode, we're going to be talking about tuberculosis, which comes up during the interview. Tuberculosis is actually 100 times more prevalent in incarcerated patients than the general population. It also contains a lot of core content that you encounter in medical school. Which may seem weird, TB seems like more of a historical thing in the U.S., but actually, globally, one-third of the population is infected with TB. But before we get started, our book recommendation for this episode is Blind Spot. It talks about the biases that we all carry because of the society we live in. It fits in well, since we'll be talking about bias in the next episode. For example, how to not let something like your patient being incarcerated affect the medical care that you provide. To learn more about biases and where they come from, you can click the link to Blind Spot in the description to find it on Amazon, or you can listen to it for free. Just click our link to Audible in the description and get a free 30-day trial with your first download free. But now, let's get back to tuberculosis. And Sarah, why don't we start with what is tuberculosis? Okay, so tuberculosis, aka TB, is a bacterium. More specifically, it's a mycobacterium, which means its cell wall contains a lipid called mycolic acid. That leads to a couple of consequences. First, it doesn't stain well with the chemicals pathologists usually use to identify bacteria. So if you swab the sputum that somebody with TB coughs up, traditional staining under a microscope would probably not help you in the diagnosis. The myocolic acid also represents a target for antimicrobial medication, but we'll get more to that later. So when someone with tuberculosis coughs, sneezes, or sprays it and not says it, yeah, nice. <laughs> they expel droplets filled with this mycobacteria. Then someone inhales the tuberculosis, which heads straight for the lungs. Now, there are a couple of important virulence factors that tuberculosis needs in order to make the lungs a nice place to stay. The first is sulfatides. Sulfatides inhibit the fusion of phagolysosomes. They're these little pockets in the cytoplasm of immune cells that are used to engulf bacteria. The second virulence factor is cord factor. It's called cord factor because it gives tuberculosis the appearance that uh, twisted cords are coming out of it. And it functions to activate macrophages and release the cytokine tumor necrosis factor alpha. Which may seem a little weird, right? Uh, Why would a bacterium want to activate two mediators of the immune system? But the reason is that macrophages and TNF-alpha are important for the formation of granulomas, which tuberculosis inhabits. Okay, so that leads to the question, what is a granuloma, right? It's basically a collection of macrophages. Actually, it's kind of like a collection of lazy macrophages. They start to eat a foreign substance and then kind of just give up. So they just wall off the substance instead of eliminating it, like when you stuff all your stuff in the closet when your mom tells you to clean your room. There are many, many diseases that have granulomas. Uh, You may remember them from our Crohn's episode, but TB is a classic one. 
More specifically, TB has caseating granulomas, which actually means resembling cheese, like literally. And that's pretty much the best way to describe TB granulomas, macrophages walling off little pockets of cheese-like tuberculosis-filled necrotic cells. So, you came in contact with someone with tuberculosis, they coughed all over you, you inhaled the TB, and it went straight for the lungs and started to form granulomas with its sulfatized and cord factor. This is called primary tuberculosis, because it's the initial infection. And you need to know that primary TB most commonly hits the lower and middle lobes of the right lung. The other thing to note about primary TB is the characteristic gone complex, which is a composed of a gone focus a.k.a. the caseating granuloma in the middle or lower lung lobes, and pilar lymphadenopathy. So on chest x-ray, you see an opacity, or cloudy spot, in the lung and where the bronchi enter the lung. Now in addition to the GON complex, let's talk about what a person with primary TB looks like. The classic description is someone with fever, night sweats, a cough, and weight loss. The cough is classically blood-tinged, though it doesn't really need to be. The weight loss is actually why TB is also called consumption. After the primary infection, it can either become latent, which is an asymptomatic infection, or it can progress to something called progressive primary tuberculosis. This is more likely to happen in someone who is immunocompromised. The infection spreads through the blood and goes everywhere. If you get a chest x-ray in these patients, sometimes you can see what looks like a ton of little seeds in the lungs. This specific type is called miliary TB because the opacities look like millet seeds. Step one alert, test writers also love the fact that miliary TB can hit the vertebra, which is called Pott's disease. Anyway, someone with the miliary TB level of infection is very sick and the prognosis is not good. But nine times out of ten, TB becomes latent, which is why at some point you've probably gotten a PPD, the tuberculosis skin test. People with latent TB can go decades without having any symptoms until TB reactivates. For instance, if they later become immunocompromised, giving TB an opening to spread and wreak havoc in the body. This is secondary TB. And it's not like the progressive primary TB we talked about earlier. It's more localized, hitting the lungs and other organs, causing caseating granulomas. But this time in the lungs, it hits the apex, and not the middle or lower lobes. This is because tuberculosis is an aerobic bacteria. It loves oxygen. And the highest pressure of oxygen in the lung is at the apex because, well, air rises. Making our way back to TB, let's talk diagnoses. The common way to test for TB is the PPD skin test. A tuberculosis protein called tuberculin is injected into the dermis. If you've ever been exposed to tuberculosis, then your immune system will recognize the tuberculin and start an immune reaction visible by a small induration or raised area. And measuring this raised area is how TB is diagnosed with a PPD. Bringing this Back to our talk on incarcerated patients, we actually have a lower threshold for the induration when it's an incarcerated patient, 10 millimeters. That way, the sensitivity is higher, which is good for patients at higher risk, like the incarcerated or healthcare workers. Low-risk people need a 15 millimeter induration. But one of the problems with this test is that if you were vaccinated against TB with the BCG vaccination, then you'll have a false positive. Which makes sense. The point of vaccines are to teach your body how to recognize a bug, and a PPD tests if your body has ever recognized TB. As far as vaccines go, the BECG is pretty terrible for making your body immune to TB, but it's fascinatingly used to treat bladder cancer for reasons we won't get into this episode. 
Now, one of the ways to overcome this is another test called the interferon gamma-released assay, also known as IGRA test. This test has fewer false positives in people who have received the BCG vaccine. So would this increase the sensitivity or specificity of the test? It would increase the specificity. Specificity measures the fraction of true negatives out of all the people who do not have the disease. The true negatives over the true negatives plus the false positives. So if you decrease false positives, the fraction goes up. Sensitivity measures the fraction of true positives out of all the people who have the disease. The true positives over the true positive plus the false negatives. So that's why the IGRA test is a little bit better. Another diagnostic tool is to examine the sputum of a patient with possible TB. We talked about this earlier and mentioned that because TB contains a lot of mycolic acid, it doesn't stain well with traditional staining. Instead, you use a different type of staining, which was historically the Zeal-Nielsen stain, also known as carbofusion stain. Nowadays, there's also the aramine rhodamine stain, which is more sensitive, and makes a better screening tool. These stains look for mycolic acid in the acid-fast bacteria like TB, nocardia, etc., And although the utility of these stains may not be very interesting, they can be a giveaway when it comes to the test questions you'll get. Another diagnostic tool is to culture the sputum, in which case you would use a special type of agar called Lowenstein-Jensen agar to grow tuberculosis. There's also a good old-fashioned chest x-ray, important in the diagnosis of active TB. And that's what you would do for somebody who tests positive on a PPD, in order to differentiate between active or latent tuberculosis. It's an important distinction to make because the treatment is different based on latent or active TB. Latent TB is typically just treated with isoniazid, but it's for about 9 months because it's a tough bug to kill. It hides in macrophages and grows very slowly, which you'd think would be a good thing, but since the drug targets processes in synthesis and replication, it takes longer to kill the bacteria that grows slowly. Active TB is treated with a regimen of rifampin, isoniazid, pyrazinamide, and ethambutol and people usually remember this with the mnemonic called RIPE. You treat with all four in the initial two months, then follow with isoniazid and rifampin for four months after that, which is a long time, and one of the biggest issues with that is that people forget, or they don't take their meds, and antibiotic resistance develops. So there's now quite a few second-line medications for drug-resistant tuberculosis. The big ones are fluoroquinolones, like levofloxacin, and aminoglycosides, like streptomycin. Okay, so don't freak out about all the vocab. We're going to do a super quick farm review of the first-line TB drugs because they are pretty high yield. Just covering mechanism of action and major side effects. The first is isoniazid. Its mechanism of action is to prevent the synthesis of mycolic acid after the drug is activated by the catalase peroxidase in bacteria. So when the catalase peroxidase is mutated, bacteria become resistant to isoniazid. Now, isoniazid has a lot of potential side effects. First, it's an inhibitor of the cytochrome P450 enzyme that metabolizes many things. Actually, one of the logistical issues of taking isoniazid for nine months is that you shouldn't drink alcohol while taking it for all nine months. Along that same point, isoniazid can be hepatotoxic, so telling patients to look out for signs of liver toxicity is big. One of the most high-yield side effects is vitamin B6 deficiency, which is pyridoxine. The classic question is a patient who is taking their TB meds and now has some numbness and a loss of sensation in their toes or something, aka peripheral neuropathy. What should they have been taking with their TB meds? The answer is vitamin B6. 
Another side effect is drug-induced lupus, and we really don't have time to explain what lupus is. But basically, it's the autoimmune disease that they mention in every episode of House because it can cause pretty much anything. In this case, it's caused by drugs like isoniazid, and will typically stop once those drugs are withdrawn. The last important point is that specific patients are more at risk for the peripheral neuropathy and drug-induced lupus. That's because they are slow metabolizers. So because their livers don't have as much enzyme to deactivate isoniazid, the concentration is higher than expected and causes more side effects. And by now, you're probably wondering why I said super quick farm review, but isoniazid is a big high-yield topic, so it's important to know. The rest have less information. So rifampin is next, and the mechanism of action is that it inhibits RNA polymerase. And like isoniazid, it messes with the cytochrome P450 system, but this time it induces it or upregulates cytochrome P450 instead of isoniazid, which inhibits it. It's also known to change urine to a red-orange color. It's pretty benign, but I mean, if you're a patient and you didn't know that, it can kind of freak you out. Then there's pyrazinamide, and no one really knows how that works. In some cases, it can increase uric acid levels, which may exacerbate gout, or it can be hepatotoxic like isoniazid. Then lastly, there's butol. It works by inhibiting arabinosyl transferase, which is an enzyme that helps synthesize the bacterial cell wall. The main side effect of butol are in the eyes. It can cause optic neuritis, which is an inflammation of the optic nerve, and this will classically present in questions as a red-green color blindness. Okay, deep breath. We've covered a lot on TB because it's a pretty big topic. So now let's end with some questions. A 52-year-old man with past medical history of rheumatoid arthritis presents with a cough. He's incarcerated and developed a productive cough over the past month. He's not sure what color the sputum is, but endorses night sweats and feeling feverish. His medical records show he had a PPD a year ago that was negative. You retest the patient, and this time there's a 14 millimeter of induration after injection of tuberculin. You obtain a chest x-ray in the workup. What do you expect to see? A. An apical right lung cavitation. B. A lower lobar right lung cavitation. C. Bilateral mediastinal cavitations. D. Diffuse opacification of the lungs. The answer is lower lobar right lung cavitation. This patient most likely has primary TB because he was previously negative and is now positive with symptoms. If it was secondary TB, then the patient would likely have an apical cavitary lesion. So upon further history taking, you see the patient is taking medication for his rheumatoid arthritis. Which of the following medications most likely increased his risk of developing this infection? A. NSAIDs. B. Methylprednisolone. C. Infliximab. D. Methotrexate. The answer is infliximab. While steroids like methylprednisolone can suppress the immune system, drugs like infliximab, which directly target TNF-alpha, are a better answer here because TNF-alpha is important in fighting granulomatous infections. Other TNF-alpha inhibitors are adalimumab and adenercept. Last question. You treat this patient with the first-line medication regimen to cure his TB. But then he comes back with numbness and tingling in his toes. On physical exam, he has decreased sensation in the toes. What is the mechanism of action of the drug that caused this adverse effect? A. Inhibition of arabinosyl transferase. B. Inhibition of RNA polymerase. C. Unknown. D. Inhibition of the synthesis of mycolic acid. The answer is inhibition of the synthesis of mycolic acid, which would be isoniazid. So that wraps up this episode. 
Be sure to listen next episode when we interview Dr. Ryan Gray and talk about his experiences taking care of incarcerated patients. Thank you.